Well, I would hope those rich lyrics would pique your interest to consider reading that book that Chris mentioned that Matt Papa recently wrote called Look and Live. I had the opportunity to read it last year, and um, I can honestly say it's one of the most inspiring, challenging books I've ever read. I would liken it to John Piper's Desiring God, that classic book um, by John Piper, but uh, it's really more for a a new generation, if you will, and uh, maybe a a more layman's perspective. It's uh, much more manageable uh, and and easier to understand and to get through. And uh, in fact, after I was done reading that book with a few men in our church, uh, I emailed Matt Papa and said, bro, you got to come to Lakeside Bible Church. Because I want you just to explode this, this passion for God and passion for Christ and passion for worship on our entire body. And um, he didn't say no. He just said he wasn't available right now. So that's good news. And uh, I'm not taking no for an answer. Uh, we're going to continue to pursue that guy. And Lord willing, someday uh, he can uh, be here with us and, and uh, we can be impacted by his dynamic uh, commitment to Christ and uh, through, through music and now through this, this book. But in the meantime, uh, grab a copy. It's in the Resource Center, Look and Live, and uh, you will be so thankful that you uh, took the challenge to read through that excellent, excellent book. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to continue in our study this morning of this uh, very helpful little letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And uh, we find ourselves today uh, in chapter 2, verse 14. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Father, we thank you for the sweet time of worship we've had together uh, singing your praise and now uh, we get to continue that worship by sitting at your feet, as it were, and listening to you speak to us through uh, this text and so I pray that Uh, We would not uh, receive this message as merely the word of a man, but as it actually is your word, and your word would perform its work in those of us who believe, and Lord, it would even accomplish its work in those who don't believe this morning, that you would grant repentance and faith uh, to unbelievers today uh, that are sitting here under the teaching of your word, and that we would have the joy of, of seeing that transformation take place in their life that, Lord, we've been blessed to experience in our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first laid out a a tentative preaching uh, schedule uh, for uh, this series uh, through the book of Philippians, I titled this passage, Quit Your Complaining. That's a a phrase that uh, every one of us who are parents have probably worn out with our kids ever since they were little. But the reality is that uh, all of us are guilty. Sometimes we're more guilty than our kids are when it comes to complaining about stuff. And let's just be honest, okay? We are all by nature a bunch of whiners and complainers. Amen? I mean, come on, it's true. Uh, From the moment that we come out of the womb, we are skilled in expressing our dissatisfaction or annoyance about things. Nobody had to teach us. We didn't even have to practice. We just knew how to do it. Even before we were able to talk, we, we, we know how to fuss and complain when we're hungry or when we're tired or when we need to have our diaper changed or when we don't get what we want. And it seems that that fussing and whining just continues throughout our lives when things don't go our way or when we find ourselves in uncomfortable, inconvenient situations or when we're faced with disappointing circumstances and and, and, and we can just find uh, just about anything to complain about, can't we? And we complain about the weather, it's too hot, it's too cold. Uh, we complain about the traffic, we complain about food, we complain about the service uh, at the restaurant, or we complain about our houses, our cars, we complain about our parents, we complain about our kids, we complain about our brothers and sisters, 
We complain about our neighbors, about our chores, uh, our, our health, uh, our, our jobs, our bosses. We complain about our classes, our teachers, our coaches, our referees, especially this weekend, right? Uh, if you're watching any of the NFL playoffs, we're, we've, we've already been complaining about the referees. The, we, we complain about our churches. We even complain about our pastors. I think the classic biblical example of complaining uh, and of what God thinks of it is the nation of Israel in the wilderness after God had, had uh, miraculously delivered them from bondage to Egypt. I know you're familiar with the story, but let's go back to the Old Testament just briefly this morning and, and consider the example of the nation of Israel. Uh, let's look at the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 14 records uh, their escape from uh, Egypt, Exodus chapter 14. Uh, this is again after God had um, sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go and after all the, uh, all, all the plagues and uh, Pharaoh finally agreed uh, to let them go uh, and so uh, there they went. Uh, but as soon as they were, uh, no, no sooner than they were out the door, uh, that they had left, Pharaoh changed his mind. He hardened his heart again and went after them. And so he loaded up all of his army and their chariots and they were chasing uh, the Israelites down in the wilderness. And we pick up the story here in Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt? that you've taken us to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? But Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent." And as you know, uh, they crossed the Red Sea, and as the Pharaoh and his army were trying to follow, uh, the Red Sea closed and, and drowned them all. And, um, and so they sang a great song in Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses and Israel. They worshiped the Lord, but in that very same chapter, uh, as soon as the praise had ended from their lips, the complaining started again. Exodus chapter 15 verse 22 says this, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah for they were bitter, therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree and he threw it into the waters and the waters became sweet and there he made for them a statue and regulation and there he tested them and he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do, not do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians for I, the Lord, am your healer. Once again, they complain and God provides well, it wasn't only complaining about the water, it was complaining about uh, nothing to, to, they didn't have anything to drink, but they, didn't, they also didn't have anything to eat. Chapter 16, verse 1, then they set out from Elam and the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, and is be, which is between Elam and Sinai in the, uh, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread in, in, uh, to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'll rain bread from heaven for you and people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them and whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, at evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord for he hears your grumblings against the Lord and what are we that you grumble against us? And here we get to the heart of the issue. They really weren't grumbling against Moses. They were grumbling against God. Verse 8, Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to, 
to the full in the morning, for the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. And as you know, God graciously provided them manna every morning. They would go out and collect it, and they'd have enough food for the day. And, uh, and, and for a while, that kept them happy. Um, but then they didn't have anything to drink again. Exodus chapter 17, then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do to this people a little more and they will stone me. Things were getting very heated here. Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Well, that made him happy for a while. But then turn over to Numbers, Numbers chapter 11, and we see that the grumbling just continues. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. So God's getting fed up with their grumbling and complaining, he's he's starting to, to singe the edges of the camp and taking out people one at a time here. The people therefore cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taborah because of the fire of the Lord burned among them. I love this, verse four. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, why, or or, excuse me, who will give us meat to eat? In other words, they were getting sick of the manna. They, They wanting to eat something else. We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. I mean, we want some variety in our diet here. And so they complained about getting meat. As you know, the Lord sent quail, just these low-flying flock of quail. I mean, you could just knock them out of the sky. You didn't need a gun. Or anything, just just kind of punch them as they go by, or whack them as they go by, and uh, they had they had more than enough meat uh, to satisfy them. But that still didn't make them happy. Really, all of this grumbling and complaining climaxed when they had gone come to the edge of the promised land, the land of Canaan, and uh, they had sent uh, Moses had sent twelve spies in to check out the land to survey. Uh, what it was like and how they were to conquer it. And as you know, they came back and uh, 10 of the spies said, oh man, we are in big trouble. I mean, we were like grasshoppers compared to these giants. There's no way we're ever gonna you know, be able to defeat these people. We're gonna go in there, they're gonna, they're gonna kill us all. And, um, and so what happens? This is Numbers 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. These guys were so fed up with Moses and ultimately fed up with the Lord and his plans, his will for their life, they they weren't trusting him at all. They were ready to to, to punt Moses and and appoint somebody else. This was a mutiny in the making. Well, how does this all end? As you know, God punished them severely. Numbers chapter 14, verse 26, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with, these evil, with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. 
Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, will bring them in. I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness." According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil generation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. So have you ever wondered what God thinks of grumbling and complaining? It's pretty clear. Uh, He thinks it's a a sin worthy of death. Turn back to the New Testament and let's see how Paul kind of brings this to bear in our lives, in the life of of Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul uses the example of the Israelites to warn the church in Corinth not to be them. In other words, don't be these guys is what he's saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Now these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it was written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and they were destroyed by the serpents. Note verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That's us, by the way. We we are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And uh, we're we're to go to school, if you will, on the nation of Israel and, and to learn lessons from their life and and what we learn. This morning is that Israel's incessant grumbling and complaining was odious to God. And he ended up killing off an entire generation to show how much he hates this particular sin. And God has clearly commanded us not to grumble or complain. For example, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 39. This is what God says. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Maybe a more effective message this morning would have been just to get up and read that verse and close in prayer. I mean, let the weight of that verse sink in. Why should any of us complain in view of our sins? When you consider how sinful we are, and the grace that God has shown to us, we have absolutely nothing to complain about. We have only to thank and praise the Lord. James chapter four, verse nine, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. First Peter four, nine, be hospitable to one another without complaint. And then here in our text for this morning, Philippians chapter two, verse 14 Paul said, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Obviously, some of the members in the church in Philippi resembled the Israelites in the wilderness who were notorious for grumbling and disputing. And Paul wanted to to nip this complaining argument of the spirit in the bud before it did irreparable damage to the church in Philippi. And we need to understand at the beginning here this morning that nothing, absolutely nothing threatens the unity and harmony of a church more than a few critical comments or a a few poorly phrased questions by a handful of disgruntled members. Furthermore, nothing ruins the testimony of a church in its community more than when its members grouse and bicker among themselves. I mean, if for no other reason then the effectiveness of our witness to a lost and dying world, we should never complain ever again. Just just to preserve our witness and our testimony 
to an unsaved world who's watching. I think that was Paul's point here that he was making to the Philippians. Not only was the unity of their church in jeopardy, as we've been learning about, but even more importantly, their ability to impact the world was at stake here. And Paul had just gotten done exhorting them to to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. We saw that last week in verses 12 and 13, which, again, we said meant that they were to live out the salvation that God had worked in them by growing and maturing in their walk with him. It's uh, Verses 12 and 13 are are maybe one of the best descriptions of the, the, the process of sanctification anywhere in the New Testament. And practically speaking, Paul wanted the Philippians to to work on the problems uh, or to work out the differences that were in the church. At the same time, they were to work out the bugs or kinks, as we said last week, in their their own spiritual lives by applying the the principles of God's word to overcome their sinful habits and their tendencies. And not only did they need to stop being selfish and prideful and only looking out for their own interests, we see that in verses three and four of chapter two, but they also needed to stop complaining and arguing, which we see here in verse 14. And while this all sounds negative, the motive or the incentive that Paul gave them to work on these things is very positive. Notice he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So his exhortation here to quit their complaining was for the ultimate purpose of showing that they were truly saved, number one, but also that they would shine the light of the gospel to a watching world that desperately needs to know Christ. And because of the positive trajectory of this, of this text, I changed my title from Quit Your Complaining to Glow in the Dark. Because that seems to kind of be the end game of where Paul is, is going here. And I think it just better reflects the positive purpose of Paul's words in this text. But let's look at this text this morning and we'll just break it down into two sections. We, we see, first of all, Paul laying down a rule about complaining. And then he proceeded to explain the reasons for that rule. And so we see the rule in verse 14 and we see the reasons for that rule uh, in verses 15 and 16. So first of all, he, in verse 14, he lays down the rule to never complain. Are we clear on that? That that's the rule, to never complain. Notice what he says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That word do, do all things, is a present imperative. It's a Again, Paul wasn't giving them a suggestion here. He wasn't giving them some good advice here. He was giving them a command. This was a a spirit-inspired command that they had to obey, not just some of the time, but all the time. The fact that it's a present imperative means that it's something that you need to continue on an ongoing basis, something to do continuously. We need to be always doing all things without grumbling or complaining. In fact, the word all is actually the first word in the Greek text. So it's all things do without grumbling and complaining. In other words, Paul was emphasizing that we should never complain at any time for any reason. So can we just say it straight? It is a sin to complain about anything, anytime, anywhere. Agree? That's what the text is saying. It's a sin to complain about anything, anytime, anywhere. And it's not good enough that we do some things without complaining or most things without complaining. We need to do all things without complaining. And so for us to be obedient to this command means that no complaint should ever come out of our mouths. Wow. Wow. I shared that with my wife early this week, and she says, well, I've sinned a lot then. And I think that would be all of our honest response. Because it seems like we're constantly grumbling and complaining. And by the way, I would say this falls into the category of one of those respectable sins, as Jerry Bridges wrote about in that great book, uh, Respectable Sins. It's one of those 
acceptable sins. It's one of those things like worry and anxiety that we kind of all do it and we all tell each other that we're doing it and nobody ever confronts anybody about it. It's just kind of accepted. And so let's look a little deeper into this sin of grumbling or disputing as it's called here. Do all things without grumbling. That's the, the Greek word gangusmas. You know, I don't typically like to throw in a whole lot of the Greek uh, out at you and impress you or confuse you or whatever it does to you. Um, I, I only say that because this is what's called an onomatopoeia. You're familiar with that expression. You may have learned about it in English class growing up. It's a word that sounds like what it means. It's just kind of this, uh, the, kind of a low, when you think about a, somebody grumbling, this low tone of voice that disgruntled people use when they murmur or complain under their breath. Right? That's the word here that Paul uses for grumbling. The, the related verb uh, is used in Matthew 20 of, resent, of, of those resentful laborers, you may remember, who grumbled about being paid the same amount of money for working all day uh, as, as, uh, as uh, the ones who had only worked the last hour of the day. They, it says they grumbled uh, under their breath. Uh, they felt like they were being ripped off. They felt like they were being treated unfairly. The word disputing is the word uh, in the Greek where we get our English word dialogue. And so the idea of disputing here means debating or arguing or doubting or questioning or criticizing or airing grievances or passing judgment on other people's ideas or opinions, like it talks about in Romans 14.1. In 2 Timothy 2.8, the word for disputing uh, is translated dissension. And so you've got these two words, grumbling and disputing, and, and, and the combination of these two, two words really describes someone who has a, has a discontent attitude. They're, they're just constantly criticizing everyone and always questioning everything. And un, unfortunately, these malcontents can be found all over the place. You may have some of those in your families. Uh, you may have them in your subdivisions. If you've ever gone to that uh, homeowners meeting, you, you, you knew right away who this person was uh, in, in our communities, in our workplaces, at, at your work, at your school, uh, and sadly, even in churches, you find these kind of people, and we've all met them, right? The people, uh, the person that has the gift of criticism, have you met that person? Um, in, in fact, you may be one of those people. Um, you think criticism is your spiritual gift, uh, and you're using it all the time. Um, but Paul's point is, and his concern here, is that these kind of people not only disrupt the, the peace and harmony within a church, but they also destroy a church's reputation in their community. Their critical spirits and, and, and complaining tongues wreak havoc inside and outside the church. Now, having said all that, everybody's like putting a zip on it. I'm never going to say anything ever again, negative. Uh, you know, well, listen, I think that doesn't mean that we should never express our opinion or share uh, our concern or air our grievance or seek answers to our questions. We simply need to do it at the right time, in the right place, to the right people, and with the right attitude. There's a right and wrong way to appropriately, humbly, graciously, respectfully give helpful feedback or even offer constructive criticism. And we have a, a, some examples in the scriptures like Acts chapter six. Remember, the, the, the church was just exploding at the time and the widows, some of the widows weren't getting uh, equal share of food and, and, and some people began to, 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 to grumble and complain and criticize the, 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 the distribution of the food and it came to the elders and, or, or the apostles at the time. They said, hey, thank you for letting us know about this situation. We want to fix this. And so they said, we're not the ones best suited for this. We need to be staying focused on praying and, and, and teaching. So let's get some guys and, and let's put them on this task. Let's assign this task to them and let's get it done. And they did, and, and it fixed the problem. But they would have never known about the problem if nobody told them, right? And so that's a good example. Another good example, I think, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it talks about when you have a dispute with a brother or sister in Christ, you have a grievance against them, maybe they've done something wrong, they've defrauded you, they've ripped you off, they've not treated you fairly, um, and you think uh, that they need to make things right, it says, don't go to 
the, the secular court system and sue them, go to the church leadership. Surely there's someone in the church who has the spiritual maturity and the biblical understanding to sit down with you and sort it out and, and, and air your grievance and, and, and work on uh, you know, being reconciled. So I think there's a balance here. Um, we don't want you to walk around going, oh, Ken said we could never say anything bad about the church, and so we're not going to ever say anything. We're going to just act like everything's perfect. And No, that's not true, okay? But come to, the, come to the people that can fix the problem. Don't just grouse about it among yourselves, right? Talk about it with those who, who can make some changes and can, can fix the problems or, the, or, or can somehow uh, remedy the frustrations that you might be feeling. And ultimately, be a part of the solution, right? That's the point. Well, question, why, why do you think God forbids complaining and considers it a sin deserving such severe punishment? Well, why do you think that is? Well, why is complaining such a big deal to God? Well, I think ultimately, because it's an attack against God himself. Even as we saw back in uh, Exodus and Numbers that Moses knew, hey, you guys aren't grumbling against me. You're ultimately grumbling against God. And see, whenever we, we grumble and whenever we complain and question and argue and doubt and criticize and air grievances, and we're actually grumbling and complaining against God. We're, we're actually arguing with God and questioning God and doubting God and airing our grievances with God, and, and, and we're basically being critical of God. You've heard me say this before, probably, that when we were younger, my sister and I would, uh, if we were ever in, in, in any proximity to the kitchen in our house growing up and we complained about anything, my mom would direct us to the refrigerator uh, or grab us by the ear and drag us to the refrigerator. That happened a few times. And, and she would force us to read this little index card that she had written out uh, on the refrigerator, and he kind of had it taped there, and I only remember the first line, and that was good enough for me. It simply said, complaining is an insult to God. She'd make us read that. We were all pouty and upset, you know, grumbling, you know, and, and, but we had to read it. Complaining is an insult to God, and that just burned into my mind as a young person that, man, this is a bad deal. Complaining is not good. It's, it's an insult to God, and specifically what we're insulting or questioning or doubting or criticizing is his sovereignty and his wisdom, his goodness, his love, his justice. It's, we're, we're insulting everything about God. And essentially, we're saying things like, God, this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. Why did you let this happen? Why, why haven't you changed my circumstances? Do you, do you even know what you're doing? I, or this is my very, I see no reason for this. That comes from a quote by John Calvin in his commentary on Job. Listen to what he says in the context of complaining. John Calvin says, why is it that men fret so when God sends them things entirely contrary to their desires, except that they do not acknowledge that God does everything by reason and that he has a just cause? As soon as, God does not, as soon as God does not send what we have desired, we dispute against him, not that we appear, uh, not, not that we appear to do this, it's not like it's obvious, but our manner shows this, nevertheless, our intent. But from what spirit is this pronounced? From a poisoned heart, as if we said, the thing should have been otherwise, I see no reason for this. That's essentially what we're saying. Even if we haven't actually articulated that, that's essentially what we're saying in our hearts. The thing should have been otherwise. This should have been different, and I don't see any reason for this, God. Meanwhile, Calvin continues, God will be condemned among us. This is how men exasperate themselves. And in this, and in this what do they do? It's as if they accuse God of being a tyrant or a harebrained. Such horrible blasphemy blows out of the mouth of men. And it has blown out of my mouth. It's blown out of your mouth. Because every day we're faced with situations that tempt us to say to God, I, I, God, I see no reason for this. Uh, uh, you get an unexpected bill in the mail from the insurance company. 
I see no reason for this, God. Um, you get a, a critical email. I see no reason for this. You get a, a, a diagnosis from your doctor. I see no reason for this. You have a difficult conversation with your spouse or, or a challenging encounter with one of your kids and you could easily think, well, I, I see no reason for this, God. Why is this happening? And I think it's the mercy and the kindness of God that at some point he doesn't say to us, you know what, I don't see any reason for you anymore. And that's essentially what he did with the nation of Israel, right? And so let's get to the root of complaining here. Let's just not, hey, quit your complaining. Let's say, okay, why do we complain? Let's, let's go deeper. Let's dig up the root, if you will. I think complaining is just a symptom of, of two underlying problems. First of all, we're failing to trust God. We're failing to trust God. We're failing to trust that he is in control. We're, we're, we're failing to trust that he is wise we're, we're, when he knows what he's doing. We're, we're failing to trust that he is good and loving and that he's fair. So we're, first of all, failing to trust God. Secondly, we're fa- failing to submit to God and his will for our lives. We're just not submitting to what he's ordained for our lives. And so whenever we're not trusting God or or submitting to his will for our lives, we will be prone to complain. And so I think the secret to not complaining is is having complete confidence in God's wise providence and being perfectly content with God's gracious provision. Let me say that again. The secret to not complaining is having complete confidence in God's wise providence and being perfectly content with God's gracious provision provision. Paul modeled this for us at the end of this letter, Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So he had complete confidence in God's wise providence in his life, and he was perfectly content with God's gracious provision for his life. So Paul never complained. But then again, he must have had it a lot easier back then because he didn't have HGTV. I just have a bone to pick with that, sorry. If you've been to India, you've been to Africa, and some of those conversations that go on on HGTV about people fussing and whining about their house and why this house is no good and why this house is so much better. And I'm thinking, you know what? You need to go to a third world country and check that place out. And, uh, but Fixer Up's okay. We're, we're good with Fixer Up, right? That's, that's a good show. But again, I bring that up because I think it's just one example of how our Western culture breeds discontent and grumbling and complaining uh, is just kind of the result of watching all this stuff and it, it makes it very difficult just to just be grateful for what we have. However, I will say this, that with, with so many people grumbling and complaining in the world, the simplest and easiest way for us as Christians to stand out from the world is just not grumble and complain. I mean, you think about all this has just made it easier for us to stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, if all we ever did was just stop complaining, that alone would make us radically different from everyone else in the world. So the question is, do, you, do the people that you live with and work with and go to school with, do they notice that there's something different about you? Simply because you... You don't grumble and complain like everybody else around the office or everybody else at your school or everybody else in your neighborhood. You just don't grumble and complain. And so there's the rule. Pretty challenging rule there to never complain. But then Paul goes on to give the reasons why we should never complain about anything. And we can just look at these relatively quickly. What are the reasons to never complain? Well, first of all, it demonstrates that we're truly saved so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent, children of God, above reproach. So, so really, just stop there at the children. So you will prove yourselves to be 
uh, blameless, innocent children of God. Secondly, it, it shines the light of the gospel to the world. That's the idea of being above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. And then lastly, it, it brings joy to our spiritual leaders and mentors when we don't ever complain. And I think that's the, the intent of the end of verse 16, so that in the day of Christ I'll have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So let's look at these reasons. Uh, first of all, it demonstrates that you're truly saved. It says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. In other words, that you would show, that you would demonstrate you're becoming more and more like Christ. In fact, your translation may simply say that you will become blameless, innocent children of God. The idea is that, that, that there's a becoming process here. There's a, there's a growing process. Um, growing in Christ doesn't, doesn't happen overnight. It's, it's a slow, messy, often frustrating process. You feel like you take three steps forward and two steps back oftentimes. But it's a, it's a process and you're demonstrating, you're showing that you're becoming more and more like, like Christ. And so he says that you would become uh, blameless and innocent. The word blameless means that, that your life can't be questioned or criticized for sin or evil. It's it's, uh, it, it's very similar to the word above reproach we're going to look at in a second, but the word innocent means that your life is pure. It's, it's unmixed un, un or unadulterated by sin. This was uh, the word innocent was used to describe uh, quality metal that didn't have any alloys in it or, or wine that had been undiluted with water. And so what, what the idea here is that we should be free from the world's contamination. We, we should be inexperienced in evil. Check out Romans 16, 9 sometime, talking about what does it mean to be innocent of evil, that you're just inexperienced when it comes to evil things and evil topics and subjects, and you just, you're just kind of clueless, and, and there's part of, there's something godly about that, the godly cluelessness about what are they talking about? I didn't get that dirty joke, and, right? Because you just, you don't, you're, not, you're not exposing yourself to that kind of stuff. And specifically here, I think what it means is that our lives should be free from grumbling and complaining, which is, which is totally unlike the world, and by the way, totally impossible unless our lives have been transformed by Christ. Again, it, it shows that we're children of God when we don't do this. You, you might remember in Luke chapter 6, Jesus told his disciples that when they love their enemies in a world that only loves those who love them... They show that they are sons of the Most High. Because only Christians can love that way. Anybody can love somebody that loves them, but only Christians, only God's kids can love those who hate them. And in the same way, I think when, when we don't complain in a world full of complainers, we show that we're God's kids. We show that we are the children of God. There's something different about us, something that sets us apart. And he uses that word above reproach. He adds that word above reproach, which, again, is closely related to the word blameless. It means spotless. It means without blemish. It was, uh, this word was used in the Greek Old Testament of the kind of sacrifice required by God. You know, he, God, God only wanted the lambs without blemish, without spot. Now, if you're looking at these words and going, whoa, that is just like blameless, not me, Innocent, not me. Above reproach, not me, right? I mean, these are, these are high standards here, but let me just get us to think about this. I don't think that Paul was advocating here or talking about sinless perfection. I think he was referring to the fact that there should be no obvious imperfections in your life. And again, it doesn't mean you never sin, but when you do sin, you confess it, you repent of it, you make things right, with whoever you've sinned against, uh, essentially this means that you are a person of integrity. There's no hypocrisy or deceit in your life. You, you've got nothing to hide. You're not walking around with some skeleton in your closet that nobody knows about. You're not walking around waiting for the other shoe to fall, if you will. Uh, you're, you're a sincere. You're without guile. Uh, to be above reproach means that, that no one is able to, to bring a valid accusation against you. Nothing, I mean, they may accuse you, but nothing sticks. Daniel probably is the best example of this in scripture. 
Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. So Daniel's a great example of, of a true believer who lived a life of integrity and was used by God to make a powerful impact in a pagan setting in which he lived and ministered. And I think Paul was calling the Philippians and us to live the same kind of life in the same kind of corrupt society as as maybe even Babylon. It says, notice he says, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What a description, what a, what, a, what a perfect description of our world today, a crooked and perverse generation. The word crooked is interesting word. It's the word from which we get our English word scoliosis, which we all know is a, a curvature of the spine. So this, the idea here is it describes something that's bent, something that's twisted, something that's deviated from the standard, which is which is true of everyone, by the way, who strays from God's path. They're, they're crooked. They've strayed off the path. The word perverse just describes an even more intense version of being crooked. It's a, it's a deviation that's resulting in something being severely twisted or distorted or out, out of whack. <coughs> and again, I don't think this needs to be illustrated when you consider all the messed up stuff we see going on all over the place, just in our country alone with, with abortion and same-sex marriage and people calling good evil and evil good and calling darkness light and light darkness and it just completely turned morality on its head. And, and we as Christians are continually being barraged by, by vulgar language and perverted images and distorted ideas and, and philosophies uh, in a world that has just deviated from God and his word. And it's easy to think, well, man, we just got to get out of here. We've got to somehow protect ourselves from all this stuff that, that is happening around us. And, and, and we're tempted to maybe run away and hide in a cave somewhere or go live in a commune all by ourselves. And, well, that's not what God wants us to do. God has clearly commanded us not to go out of the world, but to go into the world and proclaim the good news of how, how Christ came to deliver people out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so when we see the perversion around us, instead of letting it make us angry and, and, and judgmental and critical, and I, I can't believe that, and can you believe in all this kind of judgmental attitude? Sometimes we as Christians kind of cynical, self-righteous you know, attitude. Man, it should break our hearts and fill us with compassion to, to rescue those people who have strayed way off course and are headed to a Christless eternity. We shouldn't just write them off. Well, let them go to hell in a handbasket for all I care. No. Peter's a good example in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. He was living in the generation that had crucified his Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. If there was anybody who could have been righteously hacked off, it was Peter. But as he got up and preached on the day of Pentecost, it says, with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. He was pleading with them to repent and to place their faith in Christ. Notice the flow of thought here, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That word lights is the same word that is used for stars. So the idea here is that our, our, our lives are to shine in the midst of, of, of our dark culture like the stars in the sky or the, the moon or the sun even. We know Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And so in order to shine brightly, we need to live differently than the rest of the world. Namely, not being accused of, of grumbling and disputing. 
And yet, sadly, we as Christians are notorious for all sorts of moral and financial scandals. What goes on in, ch- in churches is often no different than what goes on in the world. I don't think there's anything that makes Christianity more unattractive, more distasteful to unbelievers than when they see Christians fighting among themselves. And so with God's help, verse 13, it is God who's work, at work in us, right? With God's help, we need to work out of our lives and our churches everything that mars our testimony for Christ and dims the light of Christ in us and through us. And yet as crucial as our lifestyle is to being an effective witness for Christ, we need to go beyond just being a good example. We need to be good examples. But we also need to open our mouths and proclaim the gospel. We need to not just shine with our lives. We need to share with our mouths. We need to be a witness in both our life and our lips. And I think that's the point that Paul's making. He says, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Literally, probably more accurately, uh, holding forth, holding forth the word of life or holding out. And the picture here is offering something for others to take or to receive. This is a word that is used in in secular Greek of offering uh, food or wine to a guest at a banquet. What a great picture of, of sharing the gospel. It's like offering a drink to a parched soul, like offering a piece of bread to a beggar, a starving beggar. And so we're to hold out the word of life, the scriptures, specifically the gospel, even more specifically the person and work of Christ. He is the word of life. Christ himself, John 6 68, when Jesus asked that the disciples were going to leave like everybody else, Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John 1.1, 1, 1, what was from the beginning? Excuse me, 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, John writes this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's referring to Christ, who's the word of life. And so again, it's not enough to live like Christ. We need to proclaim Christ because the Bible says it's not by seeing that people who are dead in sin come to faith in him, but it's by hearing the word of Christ, right? That's how faith comes. That's how people are granted eternal life, by hearing the gospel, not just seeing it in our lives, but hearing the message of truth. And this last phrase, he says, so that in the day of Christ, I will have no reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul, once again, is bringing up this concept of the day of Christ. He talked about it in chapter one, verse six, and in verse 10. Uh, this is referring to Christ's return, uh, what we know as the Bema seat judgment when believers will have their works inspected and rewarded. First uh, Corinthians chapter three uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, talk about the Bema Seat judgment. But just remember this one thing about the Bema Seat. The, the focus at the Bema Seat is not being punished. It's being rewarded. This is very positive. Some people, the Bema Seat, oh, and you've heard preachers say, I heard them growing up, hey, you know, someday at the Bema Seat, every sinful word you ever said, everything you did is gonna be played, on a, played back on a video screen. And, you know, I'm like, oh, you know. Well, that's not the Bema Seat judgment. The Bema Seat judgment is, is something that we look forward to with great anticipation. That's what Paul, he looked forward to that. I mean, it seemed like he was obsessed by the thought that he was gonna stand before Christ someday. And it motivated him to remain holy and, and faithful. And he used the, the, the day of Christ to motivate others to do the same. And here we, we, we see Paul's heart as a pastor come out. He, he wanted the church that he planted in Philippi to be a source of eternal joy for him. The same, he felt the same way about the Thessalonians. 
The church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19, for who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. That's what he was saying. Paul was kind of like a spiritual daddy here, a proud spiritual father. And, you know, as dad, sometimes we say, hey, make me proud. Make me proud out there. And it's not a, it's not a, a prideful thing like, hey, don't make me look bad. It's just a, 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 maybe a, a sweet, encouraging way to, to, to motivate our kids to do their best, to, to, to give them some incentive, uh, to, to persevere, to, to work hard, finish strong. That's kind of what we're saying. That's basically what Paul is saying here. Make me proud out there. Kind of like a coach, right? Coach sometimes will say that to his players before they run out of the locker. Hey, make me proud out there, guys. And they want to please their coach because they love their coach because he invested in their life and he's helped them to get to that point where they're playing in the, the national championship and so they honor and respect and revere their coach. So Paul says, do this so that in the day of Christ I will know reason to glory because I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul wanted to be able to look back at his life and, and ministry and see that all his hard work and effort was worthwhile. That's what every pastor wants, by the way. They want the people under their care to truly love and obey Christ and to not grumble and not complain and to be an effective witness for Christ, communicating the gospel with their lives and their lips. That's what every pastor wants for their people. 3 John 4 says there's no greater joy for a pastor or a parent or a mentor than to see their spiritual kids, if you will, walking in the truth. Brings great joy. And to know all the time that they spent loving them and pouring into them was not wasted. It was not all for naught. So Paul here was just saying, listen, guys, if you're faithful to work out the problems and differences in your church and and the bugs and the kinks in your own personal lives, you'll once again be an effective witness for Christ. And if all that happens, man, man, I know my labor among you has not been for naught. Not been a waste of time. I titled this message, Glow in the Dark. If you know anything about glow in the dark stuff, kind of interesting technology, Stuff just doesn't glow in the dark by itself. It has to first be exposed to a light source. It needs to be energized, if you will, by a light source. And, and then it simply just reflects that light for 15 minutes to 15 days, depending on how good of a glow in the dark thing you got going there. But I think this is a good reminder for us that we don't have in and of ourselves the light. We're not the lights in and of ourselves, okay? We, we need to be exposed or energized to the true light, which is who? Christ. And so what does that look like? We need to be, we need to expose ourselves. We need to put ourselves up to the light on, on, on a daily basis by spending time with, with Christ in the word and, and with prayer and, and, and let him energize us and, and, and come out of our quiet times, if you will, kind of like Moses came down from the mountain. Mount Sinai, his face was glowing like, whoa, what happened to you? And they had to put a bag over his head. They had to put a veil over him because his face shined so brightly because he had spent time in the presence of the Lord. That should be our experience, not literally, obviously, that we come out of the presence of the Lord glowing. And so I leave this encouragement to you from Horatius Bonar, who wrote this excellent little book called Words to Winners of Souls. And He's talking about what makes us effective in winning souls for Christ. He says this, quote, it is living fellowship with a living Savior, which transforming us into his image fits us for being able and successful ministers of the gospel. Our power in drawing men to Christ springs chiefly from the fullness of our personal joy in him and the nearness of our personal communion with him, the countenance that reflects most of Christ 
and shines most with his love and grace is most fitted to attract the gaze of a careless, giddy world and win restless souls from the fascinations of creature love and creature beauty. He said, a ministry of power must be the fruit of a holy, peaceful, loving intimacy with the Lord. In other words, the simple application of this passage is spend time with Jesus this week. And as you do that, you will naturally glow in the dark. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this text and how um, it convicts us and challenges us. Lord, we all sit here condemned this morning and in some way, shape, or form, because we're all guilty of, of, of complaining and grumbling. But Lord, there's such hope in this passage. There, there's so many good reasons why we should not complain. And so I pray that you would use these reasons to motivate us and to stimulate us to work out our salvation in the area of, of grumbling and complaining and that, to work out that bug and that kink in our, in our spiritual lives that we would complain less and less and be, be more and more grateful and more and more content uh, Lord, and, and more and more confident in your, in your sweet providence in our lives and your provision for us. And Lord, ultimately, we desire to, to be a light for Christ in this community, in this world. And so I pray that all of us would, by your grace, be diligent to spend time with Jesus in his word, in prayer, uh, so that we might uh, truly glow with his grace, his mercy, and his glory. And the people will notice something different about us this week and we would have the opportunity to tell them it's Jesus and what he's done in our life. We pray this in his name, amen, amen.